We reserve the right for explicit language, but the algorithm reveals there is no such language in this episode. Hi, it's Mike. It's Saturday, and this is the Saturday show, it being a show. You're welcome. I put those concepts together for you in one helpful package. Each week on the Saturday show, I bring you one from the best of the week and the best of ever on The Gist, and you enjoy. I hope you do, because this week we talked about, or I did, the movie Bros. I gave an analysis. We talked about why it didn't do so well at the box office. It wasn't because it wasn't funny, and one of the reasons why it was very funny was that the co-star of the movie was the very funny Guy Branham. He plays... The somewhat cliched institution of the gay best friend, but since everyone in the movie bros is gay, he just plays the best friend. He's been on the gist a couple of times, and we bring you this interview from 2018, which was the second time he was on the show to talk about a new memoir that he had out. So enjoy our bros-themed content, Guy Branham from The Vaults, and my spiel from this week. Guy Branham is a gay, out there, pop culture aficionado who I have so much in common with, it's kind of crazy. (laughs) You wouldn't tell this by the cover of the book. I never had a forward of my book written by Mindy Kaling. All I got was Malcolm Gladwell. That guy's a nerd. (laughs) Guy's book is called My Life as a Goddess, a memoir through unpopular culture. It is three things, really. It is a personal memoir of his life. It's his assessment of entertainment and Hollywood, and it's digressions about everything from Roman aqueducts to mythology to a really good breakdown of why Entourage is both better and worse as a show than we might think. Hello, Guy Branham. How are you? Hello. Good to be here. Oh, yeah. So which goddess are you on the cover? Uh, I I think I am my own goddess. Uh I am. Look, that that cover was thrown together in like 15 minutes because I showed up to, to take the photo and they were like, had me in Oxford shirts in front of like pictures of cornfields and I was like yeah. this isn't going to do <laughs> so I called my florist I got some uh, red uh, cloth that I had at my house and I was yeah. like let's turn this into something a little bit more florid so you called your florist and you said uh, dead roses please no they had brought dead roses like because that was supposed to be about me being sad I don't entirely oh. understand what that was oh. no I told my florist I need a wreath of roses stat I like the fact that you have a florist on retainer uh, it's the city of West Hollywood would you're required to <laughs> it's like having insurance if you're like operating a club or something that's like that. right it's not really about the flowers it's about the peace of mind that the flowers <laughs> the offer. stability of knowing mm-hmm. that if my yeah. friend books a tv show i know exactly where to spend 75 dollars. what if you and your family are without lilacs do you ever have the real life experience where you say something that you know is funny but you know the only audience in the room will not like it maybe you're talking to one person and you say to yourself well it's okay 
cakes. If this were a sitcom, <laughs> the laugh track would be cranked up at this point. That's so funny. That's very interesting. I usually just leave those things in my own head because I don't want to have to spend time explaining it to people. Yeah. But one of the nice things about working on sitcoms is that you really are surrounded by people who are very ready for those sitcom moments. Like I like I kind of a little bit talk about it in the book, but I think the reason we're TV writers are obsessed with writing shows about TV writers is because like all of the work is jokes. Yeah. So instead of like Superstore them running around restocking something, like Dick Van Dyke show is just jokes on jokes on jokes. Right, right. And so just basically exposition can be jokes. Yes. And character development can be jokes. But to your point, I ne- rarely say those things. I tr- just say them in my head, which shows that I am not a 1980 sitcom, but instead a bad ripoff of an Austin novel, you know, where it's it's all going on inside, and you know that there is a reader at home quietly twitter, uh, like tittering to herself, if not you, or twitter, twittering to herself. <laughs> if you had to live in only one TV genre, would it be talk shows, game shows, or sitcoms? Like sitcoms, because there's always stability. On a quiz show, you're losing some of the time. Like talk shows are glossy and fun, but I feel like you know, on a sitcom, you get to go to Hawaii like once every six months. If yeah. you're on ABC, you're going to Disneyland constantly. <laughs> That's right. What does NBC have? to offer a trip to the Comcast corporate headquarters. That sucks. Hey, Universal Studios. <laughs> so a lot of the book is how you were uh, you were not suited to your hometown and perhaps your hometown was not suited to you. Yeah, it's a tiny little farm town in Northern California. People, when they think of Northern California, think of like wineries and lesbians and like cool liberal people. But there is like a whole valley there that is producing all of the asparagus and artichokes that you are getting in your life. My town particularly was uh, peaches, prunes, all almonds, walnuts. That's good. Uh, That's a nice charcuterie plate. Hey, hey, they're they're much higher value crops than sad Midwesterners, but it's still, you know, sort of like sad, undereducated, anti-intellectual people who are angry at the world and are just trying to flip their trucks. They have four entertainment flip their trucks. Mm-hmm. What about your, so your mom was definitely your protector. Um, your dad and you seem to be from different planets, let alone different families. But how nurture, you wrote it right about the movies that you would watch with your mom. But what about the intellectual side of things? Did she nurture that? Absolutely. I didn't set out in any specific way to write about my mom in the book. It just came up because she was the person who was sort of like bringing so much of this culture to me or, or sort of my my go-to for when I had questions or curiosity about the world. She was the person who would like be into it and engage with it. And she was, you know, I think lonely in the world of first being just like a stay-at-home mom and then being and a working mom. she was pregnant when she was, what, 19? Yeah, she was pregnant when she was 19. She worked in a cafeteria, and like the ladies she worked with were great, but they weren't the smartest people on the planet, and she wanted to have a good conversation. And so she would so frequently talk about politics or art or whatever with me and it was look my my homosexuality has a deeply freudian setup i get it i'm like from a textbook in the 50s but you know my mom was my best friend and the person who i could talk to about this stuff with and she would also like like she would riff a lot with me like i remember this one time she was baking a cake and she was just like doing characters for me yeah and it was like the best that's so fun why can't life be like that Do you think being smart made you an outsider or being an outsider made you smart? That's a very interesting question. I don't know the answer. I mean, I definitely think there were smart people there for whom that world just worked more. And I think in that world working more, um, we don't talk about the way 
that class is perpetuated in this country. No one in my town was supposed to be curious. No one was supposed to want to know things because like all you needed to do was to learn how to pour concrete or work on a farm. So there were ways that curiosity like that for people who fit in more were just sort of dissuaded, even among extremely bright people, because they didn't need them getting highfalutin. They just needed them being cogs in an economic machine. You know, I kind of talk about it in the book, but I think even being gay made it so much easier for me to not just fall in with what everybody else was doing. So it it, made you a critical thinker. Yeah. 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 So here is one aspect that I was I was reading the book and I asked myself. So you write about how certain female characters who just who are done giving a fuck are in literature and in film and a lot of gay men love those characters like Mrs. Robinson. Do you think as younger gay people have it a lot easier, those characters will still be appealing? Is there some aspect to the appeal of those characters that you have to sublimate what you couldn't be as a gay man, but these women characters were acting that out on the screen and there will no longer be the need for that in the future? It is an interesting point that you raise, Mike, for two reasons. First of all is I have a joke that is essentially, my joke is that like, it used to be that to be an out gay person, you had to be amazing. You had to be Virginia Woolf or Oscar Wilde. Now, essentially, we'll let anyone in. What I am saying is being gay used to be Harvard. Now it is uh, Chico State. But like, I do really think that it is easy to overestimate the idea of like it's going to be easier for those kids or they're, they're not going to need these things. I mean, you look at Drag Race, and it is cool that so many of those queens started doing this when they were younger or had parents who were enthusiastic about it, but they are no less fascinated by Betty Davis or Little Edie, you know? I mean, they are still, because, and and will it change when we have more media that is about out gay people? Yes, but also, like, our culture has always been that, reading ourselves into stories that aren't directly about us. Uh, Let us talk about some of your writing jobs. So... You did G4 and you did things that were in the same office as E before you were writing for E. Yeah. Like having my first writing job before essentially teenage straight boys was a really wonderful challenge that was like, all right, guy, you can be a writer, but you have to make one sports joke every episode. Like you have to figure out how to write jokes about like video games and the people watching are going to be super nerds so if you get it wrong at all they are going to be mad at the world uh and it was really nice starting out on a show that did have the worst and most vehement like of comment culture like Like pre-gamergate i mean the thing is i don't think about it but like everyone who made gamergate happen was probably on those forums as a 12 year old and if we had just shepherded them better this all could have been different but i like um it's funny. I think the shows that I worked for at G4, most of them did a really good job of respecting and loving the space of women in video games and sort of understanding it as a place for like outsiders, all all kinds of outsiders. Like that's what nerd culture was. And then it turned into um, the broiest thing possible. So then you write for Chelsea and this is where 
I think most people first see you. And maybe yeah. to this day, do you think more people recognize you from Chelsea? Certainly than gay other guys. Stuff? Yeah. Like when I go to a gay bar, it is universally like, weren't you on Chelsea lately? And it's like, yes, I was. So an insight as far as writing for Chelsea and then Joan Rivers, you write about Chelsea, that exact word order was not the way to, that was not her strong suit. You had to give her an idea she could sink her teeth into. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was just the lesson of learning like everybody's got a different voice and a different approach to comedy and the way that I work isn't how somebody else works and I don't think I even think about it that much anymore yeah. because I'm more used to just sort of internalizing what their voice is and, and being able to write to that. You didn't make this point explicit but then when you included a bunch of the jokes you wrote for Joan Rivers to me those very much depended on specific word a choice and word order. Well the thing about writing for Fashion Police is that you were making a bunch of jokes about the same thing. You would have five ladies who had all worn yellow dresses and you would have to write 10 jokes on all of those yellow dresses and then some of them we didn't have enough good so you had to go back and write eight more and there comes a point where you've got nothing left so it really did require sort of really splicing the joke just right and Joan's magnificence at being able to hold all of that together her vision wasn't the best so she needed just a couple of keywords that were telling her what was going on but her keen memory of everything we had discussed at the writers meeting sometimes there would be jokes that like worked perfectly off of a real interaction she was having with somebody that like weren't in the teleprompter she hadn't prepped but she was able to pull it out and just like deliver it perfectly um, it was exciting to watch somebody in her 80s do that and kind of wonder, hey, if I do something that I love, will will I be this together when I'm 81 or 82? You wrote for the Mindy show. I wrote for the Mindy project, yes. She, You came on halfway through the season. How many seasons were you on? Uh, I was there for three seasons. So when you came on, it was mostly doing joke punch-up. By the end, were you doing story and plot? Um, I had... <laughs> People don't realize it, but scripted TV is very hierarchical. Mm -hmm. Like you start out as a staff writer. All of those like producer credits that you see on a TV show, they mean a very specific level of importance. And I was always towards the the bottom of the of the hierarchy there. But as time went, I'm also had written for a lot of shows and have a hard time shutting up. So yeah, by the by the time I had been there for a while, I was definitely, you know, pitching in on that stuff. But more than anything, I was just trying to learn from them because it was full of people from The Simpsons and 30 Rock and The Office, and they understand how a sitcom is made. And I had mostly worked on little cable sitcoms, like Another Period or Awkward, and I just saw it as like a great learning opportunity. I tried to help with plot where I could, but it was always nice when we had a punch-up day, and I was just like, <laughs> all right, sling them jokes. <laughs> Guy Branham, My Life as a Goddess, a memoir through unpopular culture. Guy Branham comes from a place that I've never met anyone from, and I think he might be going to a similar kind of place. Thank you, Guy. <laughs> Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. I woke up laughing about you so rudely calling me out on my shit. Well, you deserved it, bitch. Honestly, I was impressed. You may be more emotionally unavailable than I am. Well, maybe we can be emotionally unavailable together. Maybe we can be emotionally unavailable together. Who's writing your texts, Maroon 5? The Billy Eichner comedy bros is comedic, romantic, anthropological, libidinous, acclaimed, and it would seem financially listless. 
The companies that project opening weekend box office said that the first big studio rom-com with same-sex protagonists would take in around $10 million. It struggled to net half of that. There are lots of explanations why, but I refer you back to the part about the first big studio rom-com with a same-sex couple. That certainly was the explanation star and co-writer Billy Eichner reached for when he tweeted after the disappointing weekend, quote, straight people, especially in certain parts of the country, just didn't show up for bros. That is true. A take of $4.8 million works out to about mm, 450,000 people buying tickets, maybe less because ticket prices are higher in large cities where bros perform better. According to Gallup, Over 20 million Americans identify as LGBTQ, according to a 2020 estimate by the Williams Institute. They're pretty good on these things. Over 11 million identify as such. So this means that somewhere between 95 and 97% of the LGBTQ population also didn't show up for bros. That's not to blame anyone for not wanting or being able to see a movie. But I do want to examine Eichner's statement, to which he added, everyone who isn't a homophobic weirdo should go see Bros tonight. You will have a blast. And it is special and uniquely powerful to see this particular story on a big screen, especially for queer folks who don't get this opportunity often. Was Bros just not appealing, well-marketed, sufficiently positioned to strike the public's fancy for whatever reason? Or does Bros expose what everyone knows? Homophobia played a part in the chorus of no's among those opposed to bros. I only did that part in tribute to Moses supposes his toes are like roses from singing in the rain because I know Billy Eichner loves musicals. And I know this because in the movie, he sings a great song. There's a reference to, quote, whatever happened to Evan Hansen. He talks about his feeling like Ephelba. Mary Rogers' Peter Pan is evoked. The title song from Grease is sung. At a screening I saw of bros, Eichner was there alongside the composer Mark Shaman taking questions. Shaman wrote the score for When Harry Met Sally, Beaches, Sleepless in Seattle, and the Tony Award-winning musical Hairspray. He is a legend, and that is my point. Eichner so badly wanted this latest rom-com to be in the tradition of the greatest rom-coms that he used the greatest rom-com composer of all time for the score. He produced that movie with Judd Apatow, the greatest R-rated rom-com producer of our era, and the director was Nick Stolman, who directed Forgetting Sarah Marshall and other extremely successful sex-forward romantic comedies. The movie got really great reviews. It accomplished all that Eichner wanted. And it's still disappointed at the box office. But by citing homophobia as the independent variable, is Billy Eichner really overreacting? Well, of course he is. Miss, are you straight? Yes. Yes, we're rounding up straight people to go see my movie, Bros. It's a gay rom-com. Come with me. Okay. Come with me. I can't. I have to be Where do you Where do you have to be? Uh, A work meeting. Oh, come on. No, 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 no. I've been working for 20 years for this. I need a straight person to go see Bros. Overreacting is what Billy Eichner is famous for, but not that famous. And that's one of the reasons why bros didn't do so well. I was talking to a person who saw bros in the theater and I said, oh, I saw a screening and Eichner was there. Who's Billy Eichner? She asked, uh, he played Bobby in the movie. Oh, you mean the main guy? Yeah, the main guy. She loved the movie, by the way, but it goes to show that Billy Eichner may be a member of the LGBT community, but he doesn't have high Q ratings. Also, the movie was released in October, a dead month for rom-coms, and rom-coms have become kind of dead overall. They're now a thing of streaming services. They just don't do that well in theaters unless they star either Brad Pitt, 
Sandra Bullock, George Clooney, Julia Roberts, or ideally some combination of those four. And even then, they don't always do so well. But, but, to describe the poster for bros, but it is impossible to say that some amount of reticence wasn't because of the subject. No, not the gay themes or gay characters or depictions of gay life or outrageously funny gay lines. Bobby, I had sex with that 65-year-old. Jesus, he's ripped. I know, it's like they injected steroids into Dumbledore. Bros is far from the only place to find those references. They're inside your own home on some of the most popular forms of entertainment today. There are gay characters everywhere in film and TV. But, but, poster again, they're not having gay sex, or as they call it, sex. And while there were no penises in bros, and I think the depiction of butts were also all cheek and no crack, which is also the slogan for the Russell Brand comeback tour, there was gay sex. Not explicitly depicted, but it was there. It was going on. You could see it. That was part of the point. And lots of Americans who might seek out a rom-com are going to pause at putting down their dollars for a movie that might be as raunchy as Trainwreck or 40-Year-Old Virgin, but with only men in those sexual situations. Is that homophobia? Actually, I think it is. It fits the definition of a fear or discomfort, specifically at something gay. It's applying different standards to one group, men having sex, to a different group, heterosexuals having sex. This wasn't the first big movie to have depictions of gay sex. It wasn't the first comedy to have lots of gay themes. But it was the first to add the sexual content to the comedic content of a big Hollywood blockbuster type film and to expect it to perform like a usual Hollywood big blockbuster type comedy. And while I do think that's homophobic, as I said, in the literal sense of the term, I don't know that it's bigotry. How dare you not be entertained? That is an untenable stance. To make the argument is to lose it. And Billy Eichner is no stranger to losing it. For a dollar, will you be seeing bros? Will you see bros? I'm sorry. Why, why? I'm sorry. I'm sorry I'm not Florence Pugh! I do think the filmmakers mistook the mood of Americans. They, or most Americans, do not possess anti-gay animus. Most Americans who watch Euphoria, who buy Lady Gaga albums, but who are also uninterested in this movie, do not want gays to be second-class citizens or have fewer rights. But there's a leap from that tolerance, which was the ideal around 1995, or that acceptance, which is where we were around 2015, to celebration, which is the demand today. I do think bros did not realize that the majority of Americans are maybe somewhere between tolerance and acceptance, but aren't at celebration. Most of our non-bros-going countrymen don't begrudge the gay community their celebration, it's just not a shared celebration. And to hear the statements of many in the gay community, it shouldn't necessarily be. Would it be better if it were? It's a point the movie makes. Gay sex was more fun when straight people were uncomfortable with it. The characters bemoan the greenwashing of the rainbow flag, the corporatization of pride, the boring homogenization of what was once a more thrilling, though certainly fraught, existence. And what is more safe and more boring than a rom-com that hits every beat of the genre that makes, I don't know, a solid $15 million on opening weekend and then goes on to make the stars feel trapped by the limitations of the genre? Maybe bros isn't proof that America is homophobic. Maybe it shows that Billy Eichner is really more subversive than he realized. 
at the screening I was at, Eichner made only a couple of references to his online comments and their blowback. One was to talk about a removed scene where Harvey Firestein gets in a brawl with queer Twitter trolls at the Provincetown Gay Pride Parade. That should have been in there, I'd say. And then he was asked by a particularly perspicacious audience member this question. If the movie Bros, which we just saw, existed in the universe of the movies, would Aaron, who's the love interest character, who's less activist than Billy Eichner's character, would Aaron actually run out to see the movie Bros? And Eichner answered, eh, I think he probably would have waited until the second weekend and then gone out with friends afterwards, which is an option available to us all. And that is it for this The Saturday Show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Normally in this space, I say I'll talk to you on Monday. And while I will talk on Monday, you may not hear me unless you go into the archives on your own. Monday is either Columbus Day or Indigenous Peoples Day, depending on your generation, predilections, and opinions of presentism or genocide. Anyway, you really hate to end a lovely podcast with the word genocide. So let's just say this. I'll talk to you on Tuesday. <laughs>